One of the things I've been saying over the last uh, several weeks concerning this series is that, as the video points out, there's no one name, there's no one title sufficient enough to uh, describe the, the majesty and the wonder of this amazing person we call Jesus. Uh, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star. Uh, a list of names is not sufficient enough to, to describe how awesome of a person he is. Maybe I should say it with a little, uh, a bit of my, my granddaughter Bryn's attitude. He is amazing, <laughs> you know? Definitely not as cute as she is, but she's got attitude. And that's what I think we need to have, is attitude when it comes to, to Jesus. Uh, you might be asking the question, like, why is it so important for us to know all of these different names and titles that, that we've been looking at now for the last five weeks? And, and the answer is, well, let me try to illustrate. I was thinking of a movie uh, this week that, that, that might make my point. Um, and uh, most of you probably in the room, maybe the majority, uh, would be familiar with this uh, movie. Uh, but then I started to realize that this film was released in November, so this is the anniversary this month, November, and I was, I was amazed, you know, where does time go? Uh, 1993. So, so that makes the film 20 years old. That means that some of you weren't around when the film was first released, or some of you, like, like Andrew, were toddlers, and Andrew was looking for his baba, you know, which is the bottle, you know, uh, so I doubt very much if, if any of your parents brought you in a stroller to Stony Brook to see Schindler's List, All right? And you know Schindler's List? Schindler's List has is, is, is been said to be one of the best films ever made. It's ranked number eight in a list of the top 100 films. It won uh, seven out of 12 nominations for Academy Awards that year. Uh, including Best Picture, Best Director, Steven Spielberg, you've heard of him, shot the film in black and white. It, it almost comes across as a documentary. It's about World War II. Uh, but it's particularly about a man by the name of Oskar Schindler, who was a, a German businessman who had amassed a great deal of wealth, uh, taking advantage of the German uh, uh, exploit to dominate the world, and, and he opened up factories in occupied territory in, in uh, Europe, utilizing Jewish captive refugees as employees in his factory. Now, the fact of the matter is that while he had this motivation to become rich, he, he was also kind of conflicted by, by, by the mistreatment of the Jewish people, and he had a heart for, for his workers. He was really compassionate and kind, even allowed them to, to, to privately or secretly, I should say, celebrate the Passover, which would have been really dangerous for them and for him. Uh, but, but it shows you he had a heart for, 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 for these people. And, and really kind of like the, the pivotal point of the movie or, or the film is really toward the end of World War II when it becomes apparent that Germany is going to fall to the Allied forces and all of the captives, the, the Jewish workers, are going to be uh, transformed or tra translated, not translated, uh, transferred, there you go, tra transferred to, uh, uh, to Auschwitz to be executed. And so he comes up with a plan, and his plan is to pay for, out of his wealth that he's amassed, to pay for each soul. And, 
and, and he knows them, so many of them by name because, because he cares about them. And uh, the, the Jewish accountant and himself, the, the scene is, is, is this pivotal point in the scene. It's very emotional. And, and they're adding names, names of people that they, that they knew. And, and the list is getting long, and there's paper after paper, and the list, 650, then 850, and then almost 1,000 people are on, this, are on this list. And he says to the accountant, that, that's, that's all the money I have left. Put your name at the bottom of the page. And, and he's, holding, he's holding the pages in his hands, the accountant is, and he comes to this realization, and he says this, and this is the famous line from this movie, and it's, the list is life. The list of names is life. And I, I, I want to tell you by, by illustration is that we've been given a list of names found in the, in the scriptures. And those names, not of many, but of one glorious person. And his name is life. It's life to everyone who finds him. In him is life, and his life is the light of men. He said, I was the, he says, he's the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In him is life, and he's come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And let me tell you why this is absolutely so important, because all those names that we looked at in that video, he's the son of God, the son of man. He's the alpha, the omega. We've spoken about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is life found in Jesus and in no, one, uh, no other than Jesus. His is the only name whereby men must be saved. In fact, the very knowledge of his name is the definition of what eternal life is. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they might know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. That is the very definition of what eternal life is. And the reason why this is so important, especially in the culture and in the environment that we find ourselves in, in this nation, in this hour, and in our generation, is because, because truth is not as important as, as it should be. Because, because absolute truth has been mugged. It's, been, it's, it's fallen in the streets. Uh, the, the idea of absolute truth has been assailed and assaulted by our society. And, and, and let me just give you one example of, of why I say that so. There's a, a video footage that you could see on YouTube of Oprah Winfrey's TV show. And uh, in the program, there's a dialogue that's taking place between herself and the audience, right? And, and she makes this incredible statement. She, she says this. She says, there are many paths to what some people call God. In other words, there are many different ways that you can get to God. But somebody from the audience objects and says, but what about Jesus? And she says, well, what about Jesus? Jesus said that he was the only way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father except it be through him. And then this is what she responds to. In, in, to, to the audience members. She says, do you really think that if there's someone on the other side of the planet who lives a good life, has a good heart, lives the way Jesus would have had him live, that he would not make it into heaven? And the audience, or the person that, that made that statement is, is kind of reluctantly concludes, well, she says, God knows the heart. And she concedes to Oprah's argument that if you're good, and if you're good enough, you'll get into heaven. So it's not surprising 
I share with you a survey taken by the Pew Forum for, on Religion that 57% of evangelicals, 57% of evangelicals believe that all religions lead to God, that many religions can lead to God. Here are some of the statistics out of a, out of a survey of 35,000 Americans, which is a, a relatively large uh, survey. Out of that, 83% of mainline Protestants believe that many religions lead to eternal life. 83%. Out of the black Protestant churches, 59%. Roman Catholics, 79%. But, but what is so disturbing is that 57% of what we would call evangelical believers, church attenders, say that there are many religions that lead to eternal life in direct contradiction to what Jesus said, that I am the only way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except it be by me. Now, here's, the, here's the, the atmosphere in which we live in, that anyone who says that and believes that is somehow intolerant, somehow exclusive, that is somehow being arrogant. And I want you to know that Jesus didn't say that he was the only way to God the Father because he was either arrogant or intolerant. He said that because of the enormity, the horrific consequences of sin and eternal death. There is no other way to remove the consequences of sin and death except it be through Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer is a well-respected name in Christianity. And he coined a phrase, and the phrase is this, the opiate of the conscience, the opiate of the conscience. And what he meant by that was this. He said, the vague and tenuous, t- tenuous meaning weak or flimsy or, or, or fragile, hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. I, I, I would put a B in front of that. I would say billions probably an opiate of the conscience. In other words, it is a, it is a drug that stupefies, that, that, that dumbs, that destroys. You see, the belief that God is too kind and too good, so, somehow it's honoring God by believing that God will not punish people that are just, you know, not really perfect. When the truth of the, of the matter is, is that the reality of God's kindness is seen not in that God will not punish the guilty, but that God has punished himself in the place of rebellious sins like you and me. What Christ accomplished at the cross was to display the infinite justice and the infinite love and kindness of God. The cross is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. And it amazingly displays the grace of God in a way that does not violate God's holiness. In fact, it actually magnifies God's holiness. So here's a question for you. What's the difference between the phrase a fat chance and a slim chance? Think about it. You ever use that expression? Fat chance, slim chance. They sound like they're opposites, fat chance, slim chance, but really they're saying the same thing. 
And all the religions of the world are, are really, they seem to be saying something different. They seem to be different. But they're all basically saying the same thing. And that is that you can, you can come to God through human effort, through human achievement, through, through merit. And basically they're all saying the same thing. One of the most persistent misconceptions about heaven is, is the notion that heaven is filled with people who are good and moral, who deserve to be there. But the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that none of us deserve to be there, that grace puts us all on an equal level, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But here's the, here's the thing, that the gift of eternal life is through Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life, not on the basis of our deserving, but on the basis of his greatness and kindness. So the prevailing thought is that, is that heaven is filled with good people, good moral people, that the only thing that excludes you from going to heaven is the bad things that you've done, when in reality, we've all done bad things. If we've, if we've thought bad thoughts, but, but never did a bad act, it, it's as sufficient as if we had already committed a bad act. And so the real truth is, is that it's not, it's not bad things that keeps us out of heaven. It's the belief that we are good enough to stand in God's presence. It is, it is, the, it is the false belief that self-righteousness is sufficient to stand before an infinitely holy God. Philip Yancey uh, wrote a book I've quoted from him from time to time. It's, his title of the book is called, What's So Amazing About Grace?, and he received a complimentary letter from one of his fans that liked the book, and, and, and yet the, this woman made a mistake when she wrote to him in the compliment, and what she said was, was I really loved your book, What's So Annoying About Grace. What's so annoying, not what's so amazing. And so, and so what he says, what, what Yancey writes is, subconsciously she expressed what a lot of people feel. That is that we would rather do something to earn forgiveness than be dependent upon grace. We would rather assure ourselves of forgiveness by doing something rather than trusting in the grace of God. Now the Bible says the Lord came by Moses, but grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. And we're all debtors to grace. And we have received from him grace upon grace, if, if our hearts have been opened toward Christ, then we have received grace heaped upon grace. And I want you to know something. We're going to look at a couple of more titles. We're going to add to the list, and the list is life. It's life to those that find it. Two, two titles given to Jesus in one of the last books of the Bible, the book of Malachi. Now, if you're Italian and you call it Malachi, that's Okay. My mother's called it Malachi, and so, you know, it's all right. But uh, from the book of Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, there, there are two titles. There were more than two, but, but there are two titles that we're going to look at this morning. One is called The Messenger of the Covenant, and the other is called The Refiner's Fire. And so let's look at that in its context this morning and see what we could add to the list of life in, in Christ Jesus. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger. God is speaking, right? The Lord God is speaking. We'll see that at the end of this verse. 
I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who is that? Who is the messenger who was, who was commissioned to prepare the way before the Lord? That's John the Baptist. Make straight path for the coming of the Lord. John preached repentance and the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and John introduced Jesus to the nation as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So, so the first person mentioned here is John the Baptist. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's the emphasis. It's me. Then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire. One translation says, in whom you delight, he will come, says the Lord Almighty. God's coming himself, Emmanuel, God with us. So it's no doubt this is talking first about about John the Baptist, but then it's talking about Jesus who's called the messenger of the covenant. Jesus is not only the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant in his blood, but he's the message itself. I I, I love the scripture where it says that in the past God has spoken to the to the fathers by the prophets, but in this last hour, he has spoken unto us by literally the language of his son. He is the logos, the, the word of God, the very message of God. It says in verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Good question. You've been waiting, you've been anticipating, you've been expecting. The one whom you desire is coming, but when he comes, who is going to be able to stand? Who is going to be able to endure the day of his coming? And literally, that was fulfilled. And we've looked at that several weeks ago when we spoke about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When they came to arrest Jesus, when dozens and dozens of soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And when he uttered the words, the same words that were first spoken to Moses from the burning bush, I am, I am. When Jesus said, I am, they fell back with like dominoes, like bowling pins. They just fell to the ground. That name which is interpreted as Yahweh, the Lord, in fact, it's appropriate that John would use that description of Jesus because John says that there are seven different great I am's concerning Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the, the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I, I, I love those sayings about Jesus, that he is. He's, he's everything that we possibly need. But who can endure the day of his coming? With laser-like scrutiny, Jesus judge the religious leaders of his day as being hypocrites, as being blind guides leading the blind. He said, you travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he's converted, he is twice as much a child of the devil. I mean, there's a, there's a, a side of Jesus that you don't want to mess with. There's a, an aspect of Jesus that is that is absolutely dangerous. That, that lion of the tribe of Judah who comes in and who cleanses the temple because of the zeal of, the, of his father's house. So it says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. John said that when he baptized, he baptized with water, but there's one coming after me. When he baptizes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, fire. Jesus said, I, 
I've come to set the world on fire, and I would that it was already ignited. Jesus has set a fire. He's ignited a fire that for the last 2,000 years has not been quenched. Armies have tried to destroy it. Religions try to defeat it, but they cannot. The devil tries to squash it, to quench it, but he, he cannot. How many of you ever heard of Christopher Hitchings? Christopher Hitchings, one of uh, the most prominent uh, atheists of, of, of our day, died not too long ago. Uh, but you may not know, he had a brother by the name, or still has a brother by the name of Peter Hitchings, who was on a panel, uh, and they were discussing a philosophy and discussing uh, some various subjects along the lines of philosophy. And, and one of the participants in the audience asked the following question of the panel, which so-called dangerous idea do you each think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented. Now, the moderator went to the, the first person that asked to explain what, what they believe was the most dangerous idea that could change the world in a positive way, was a homosexual activist who said, listen to what he said, he said, forced abortions worldwide for the next 30 years, every, every pregnancy, forced abortions, because there's too many blankety-blank people on this planet, to which he received a, a rousing applause. Then the moderator turned to Peter Hitchens and asked him to give his answer, and this is what he said. He said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead, and that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. And the moderator asked him to elaborate on what he meant by that. And then he said this, the divinity of Christ is so dangerous because it alters the whole of human behavior and all of our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice, and there is hope, and therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters all of us. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. And I just thought that was so cool, coming from the brother of one of the most anti-God and anti-Christ atheist of this generation. Powerful. See, Jesus has ignited a fire that cannot be quenched. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by fire. I uh, played with matches. I uh, almost burned my father's butcher shop down because I stuffed papers in this window and I lit it on fire. Uh, why did I do that? I don't know. I was just fascinated by fire. When I was about seven or eight years old, on the block I lived, on the corner, uh, I don't know if you guys might remember this, but there was a fire, a building, about a three-story building uh, had been damaged by fire. It was uninhabited. It was, it was, it was, it was ravished by, by fire, but it was still standing. I snuck into the, the building to just 
just examine, you know, what the fire did, because I was just fascinated by fire. It was both thrilling and, and, and frightening or scary at the same time. I find that there's an aspect of Jesus in my relationship to him that is both fascinating and, and, and thrilling and exciting and also very scary all at the same time. Remember, he is both the Lamb of God and the Lion the tribe of Judah. And the writer of Hebrews, remember, he reminds us to, to serve the Lord, he says, with reverence and with awe because our God is a consuming fire. It says this in verse three, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. He will refine them like gold and silver. John Piper rightly said, he is not a forest fire that destroys indiscriminately. Neither is he like a furnace that that consumes completely. But he's like the controlled fire of a refiner who purifies who takes something of value and makes it more valuable, who takes something of value and who cleanses that from all of its impurities and makes it something of greater worth. And the reason why we can have confidence that this fire is not going to destroy us, it is not a destroying fire, is because of verse 6. Verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. You're not consumed because of his great faithfulness. It is not a destroying fire. And I want you to notice that this portion of scripture is talking all about what he will do. The emphasis is not upon upon my making myself clean or my becoming pure by human effort. Rather, it is the focus is on the refiner who places that precious metal in the, in the furnace, and it is his process and his skill and his ability that takes and purifies and makes clean. This is so important. Listen, if you don't hear anything else, please, you got to hear this, right? This is so important. If we could, by discipline, if we could, by, by trials and adversity, simply become better, if, if we can become 90%, 95% more perfect to what God wants in our hearts, then what was the purpose of the cross? What was the cross all about? If we can, through discipline, if we can, through, through chastening ourselves or, or through self-denial or through sacrifice or through works, if we could somehow make ourselves more acceptable to God, then what in the world was the cross about? The song that we sing is, what can... What can wash away my sins? What can make me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb of God. He is the only hope. And he's given himself so that he might have for himself a people who are purified and who are zealous to do what is good. There's no doubt that difficulties, Doug said it last week, that difficulties and trials, there's a purpose behind it. It, it, is, to, it is to mature us. It is to develop faith in us. It, it is to, to create patience and endurance and character in us. But never forget that it's his work 
and that he is faithful to complete the good work that he has begun in you and in me. It's not up to me. I did not save myself, and neither can I keep myself saved unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. There's so much joy for us. We, we ought to be the happiest people in the world. Even in the midst of, of suffering and trial and adversity, we have a joy that is unspeakable, full of glory. This is the way John puts what's happening to us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are right now. That's what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. The reflection of what he is shall be seen in those who have this hope in him. And then it says this in that last line, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. There is a hope that purifies. There is a hope that cleanses. There is a hope that is all in Jesus, the hope of glory that is able to take our brokenness and to make something beautiful in his time. The story goes that there was a group of ladies who were, who were studying through the scriptures and they came across the book of Malachi or Malachi if they were Italian, I don't know. But they, they came across this phrase, refine as fire, and they wondered what, 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 what could this possibly mean? So one of the ladies volunteered to research the subject and come back the next week and report on, on, on what, is, what does it mean you know, to, to them. And, and so she, she made an appointment with a silversmith to observe the, the process of silver. She didn't tell them why she was interested in making silver, just that she was interested in making silver. And so she observed and she watched the, the, the silversmith hold that precious metal in the very midst of the flame. And he never let it go. And he never took his eye off. And, and, and so she said to him, she said, she said do, do you have to stay with that all this time? And he says, yeah, because, because if not, if, it, if it's in there just, just, just a little bit too longer, it might destroy the precious metal. And so she said, but how do you know? How do you know when it's ready to be taken out? He said, that's easy. He smiled and he says, when I see my own reflection in the silver. There is a hope that purifies us. And I don't know about that final process that when we see him in his, in his second coming, when, when, when we are gathered together to see him, that final process, we shall be as perfect as he is. Flawless. But right now, positionally, right now, legally, right now, before God Almighty, we are pure. We're pure in his sight because of faith. Faith that attaches us, that connects us to the one who endured the fire of God for us. Maybe, maybe there's a better illustration from the scripture, what I'm talking about. Uh, you probably know the story. All, all the children know the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet we go. You know, you remember that? 
And these three young Jewish boys that were thrown into the fire because they refused to bow their knee to the king who thought that he was God. And the furnace is heated seven times hotter than usual. And the soldiers who threw them into the fire, they were consumed by the backdraft of the, of the flames. But they themselves were, were without harm. In fact, the only things that burned on them were, were the ropes that bound them. And they're walking around in the fire. And the king, you know the story, looks into the midst of the furnace. And he says, did we not throw three men into the fire? How is it that there's a fourth man walking in the fire? And he has the appearance of a son of God. The only one who is able in time and space to be able to endure the, the, the fire that is heated seven times hotter is the Son of God who is an all-consuming fire, who, who saves us from the fire because he himself endured the fiery wrath of God himself and was not destroyed. The cross is all about Jesus being in the midst of the fire for us, to redeem us, to save us, to spare us from the consequences of the fire. Uh, my wife reminded me we need to pray for the people in the Philippines this morning. They, they've suffered a horrific uh, typhoon in the Pacific. It's called a typhoon. Here it's called a hurricane. Winds of over 200 miles an hour. Uh, the last estimate I heard was over 10,000 people have probably died and maybe, maybe even more than that. But let me tell you something else that is destructive that takes place in the Philippines every, every year, every Good Friday. There are dozens of individuals who are, who are nailed to crosses. Every Good Friday, they experience, I think you've got a photo that you can put up on the screen if you would. But there are dozens and dozens of young people. In fact, there's one man by the name of Ruben who's about 52 years old, who's been crucified, who's been crucified 25 times, maybe 26 times, as an act of penance for their sins. Now, they are not left on the cross to die. Many of them are, are only there for a, a very short period of time. But they go through that as an act of penance for their sins. And they consider themselves part of the faithful. But I, I've got to say that they are part of the faithless because they don't get it. Jesus was nailed to the cross so that we would not be nailed to a cross. I mean, the whole point is that he is the only one worthy. He is the only one whose life is sufficient to remove the weight of guilt and shame and sin and the consequences of eternal death. And he did so. He did so out of infinite love. Infinite love. It was love that reached out to suffer the cross on our behalf. This is a gentleman by the name of uh, Larry uh, Swelling. His wife of 58 years, married 58 years, his wife of 58 years was in desperate need of a kidney and she was dying. But Larry didn't want to wait until, until a donor came up. He, he started to think outside the box. He, he wasn't going to sit idly by while his wife 
was closer to death each, each day, so he took to the streets in, in search of a donut. He bought some materials, and he made a, he made a sandwich board. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's, the board simply said this, need kidney for wife and his phone number. The first day he walked, he walked 15 miles in 97-degree temperature, talking to anybody who, who, who would stop and talk to him. Over the next several days, he walked as many, as many miles as they had been married in search for a donor. And one of the lo- uh, local news uh, stations picked up the story, and his story went viral. In fact, it went around, around the world. And offers of don- donations for kidneys came in from really all over the world, L- literally hundreds and hundreds of, of, of offers for for, for Larry's wife came in because he was, he was refusing to give up and, and, and he was thinking outside the box and a donor was found. I, I want you to know that God found a way. God found a way, but you know what? He didn't, have to, he didn't have to walk through heaven. He didn't have to search for a donor. All he had to do was look to the list. He looked to the list of the names of his son, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He looked to the beloved son of God and sent his son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The book and the list is life. A few years back, I I tipped the scales uh, I tipped the scales of, uh, and what I mean by that is I, I tipped the, s- the scales of years uh, for the last number of years, and I haven't figured it out, but over the last number of years, I've preached the gospel more than, I've, more than half my life. And, 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 and I, I say that because what an amazing privilege that's been for me. It's not an accomplishment. It's a privilege that for more than half my life, I've been preaching Christ and preaching the gospel. Well, and, and, and the thing is, is that I have never lost the, the amazement of grace or the wonder of grace. And the, and the question that I always ask when I think about grace is, why me, God? Why me? Why do I know? Why, why did you choose me? And, and while there's no answer other than it was something in God to make himself known to me, I am the recipient as many of you are, of grace. And that's amazing. And I've got to tell somebody about that. And that's what I've been doing more than half my life is telling about how awesome a person Jesus is. I'll close with this. Max Lucado tells a story of a friend of his. His very young son by the name of Daniel was, in, in his very challenging life, was born with a double cleft palate, double cleft palate. And while he had several operations to correct the deformity, the evidence of having that double cleft palate was still visible. And it would sometimes it would sometimes attract people to stare, and sometimes people would make comments. But you know, but you know, D- Daniel's attitude w- was was so great. He he would say something like this: "God made me this way. What's the big deal?" On this, on this one particular occasion, he, he, he was made student of the week, and as student of the week, he had to bring something into his class for show and tell. And so he told his mom, I want to bring the pictures 
of how I looked before my surgery. And his mother was very concerned and, and, and protective and saying, are you sure you want to do that? Don't you think that you're going to feel funny? And his attitude was, oh, no. I want everybody to know what God did for me. What a great attitude. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what a great attitude Daniel had. I'm not ashamed to let people see the deformity from which I've been made well, what God did for me. You know, our message ought to be the same. That is the motivation for us, that, that we're not going to back down because we live in an environment where, where, where Jesus is being accused of being exclusive or, or, or being, being somehow, you know, proud or, 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 or any of these things. No, no, no. The reason is because we were so deformed that the only way that we could be made whole is through what Jesus Christ did for me and did for you. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now when we close this morning and we, we sing this final song before we leave and, and, we, and we come to the verse where we're, we're gonna sing, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless his holy name. I want you to remember that his name is life. And the list of his names is life to those that find it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the Son of God whom you've provided for us. And he is indeed our all in all. He is indeed the resurrection and the life. He's the bread of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And I thank you that there's so many in this room that have, that have found his name to be life to them. But if there's someone here this morning who has not yet made that connection or made that transaction, I, I pray for them this morning. We pray for the people in the Philippines as well, that you would be merciful to them and bring, bring help to them in their hour of need. But, but I also ask you to bring help to anyone here this morning who is in need of being healed of the deformity created by sin. That if they would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, though the message of the cross is offensive, purposely so, to reveal what is in the human heart so that the consequences of sin, the consequences might fall on Christ as the one who was in the midst of that furnace for us. I pray that they would make that connection of faith today. If, you, if you're here this morning and you would just simply let this be your prayer, just say in your own words, say, say Jesus Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I accept you as my only savior, as my only source of salvation. Change me. Make me one of your own. If you would just do, do that right now as, as I've led you. And please tell somebody. Let somebody pray for you. We encourage you. There's, there's Bibles in the back of the 
foyer for you to take and start to read the word of God. So Father, I, I pray for the encouragement of the house this morning. Those who've been walking with you for many years, Lord God, we, we thank you because we, we, will never, we will never get over the wonder of grace, the unmerited kindness and goodness of God that you've lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. We thank you this morning for that. As we stand to sing one more song of praise to you this morning, Lord, remind us, remind us now that the list is life. 